For the Jews in exile, their exile seemed to them increasingly as death. Death in despair, they had no home, they had lost that, and they had no hope of one. But now Ezekiel the prophet, God wishes to lead his people out and bring them back to the land of Israel. No small thing that. The section of Ezekiel we have today is the second part of, a, of two parts that really, in a sense, need to belong together. I think it's Ezekiel 37, the first 11 or 12 verses is the first part we're missing. Yes, so Ezekiel 37, 1 to 11. And then today we have Ezekiel 37, 12 to 14. 12 to 14. And the first part of Ezekiel is a valley of bones. Nothing drier or more dead. A valley of bones, impossible there to have hope of anything except death. And the destruction is evident. And yet God says to the prophet that these will become an army, they will come back to life, and indeed they do. This great miracle, this in, in Ezekiel presaging what we hear about today, and what we hear in earnest about at the Easter Vigil on Holy Saturday night, and celebrate throughout Easter Sunday, and the whole season to come, and then every Sunday on the Lord's Day for the rest of our lives. I will put my spirit in you that you may live, and I will settle you upon a land. Thus shall you shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord God is God. You know, I once went through, um, I was walking through Harvard Yard. I go through there many, many times a day, going in different directions to different schools, and uh, furred out the grad students, the professional students, kind of scurrying like squirrels trying to get away from me. Just kidding. And the, uh, I saw everyone stock still. It was five in a winter evening, and everyone was looking at the sky, and they were thinking a plane was about to land or attack. And do you know what it was? It was Jupiter. It was Jupiter. And they had realized how bright or striking it could be. And in a city with all these lights, a place with all these lights, we forget about stars because we don't even see them. That marvelous song in... Uh, uh, when uh, the fellow sings, you know, the stars, uh, you are the, now I forgot the line, but uh, in the opera, who looks up at the stars and they're just unchanging and movable and so on. However immovable they are, there were things that moved above them, the wanderers, Greek planetes, and the planets moved about, and certainly with their superiority of movement, they were thought to be gods. And that was what early women and men thought. But then came the chosen people and God's revelation to them and the formation of what we call the Pentateuch and then the book we call the Bible with the Jewish and the Christian scriptures together, our Bible. And there in Genesis in the first chapter, you see a world where each day was run by one of the gods of the planets so that to this day we still have a, a, uh, the seven days of the week each guarded by a particular planet and then the, the, also the sun and the moon. And yet into that world, there was a completely new message. And then instead of each of these gods, each in charge on their appropriate day, there was only one God, the Lord God. And that recurs constantly in Ezekiel. And we hear it even in this very brief section of Ezekiel 37, 
Thus you shall know that I am the Lord, I have promised and I will do it, says the Lord. And so just as Genesis said, no, there are not many gods who battled and the results are the results of their battles. There is only one, the Lord God. He made everything that is and all he made was good. And he made men and women as well. He made you as well in his image. And then he explained by the days of creation, the different days of the week, not due to the gods, but that sevenfold structure, the days of the week and then the day that God rested. And I might add, built into the week a, a chance to relax and rest, which people living under slave drivers needed, which 21st century men and women need to protect themselves from themselves because they're their own slave drivers. And the day also to give worship to God and to take time for the Lord God. And it was the Lord God who took those bones and raised them up into an army, as it says in the beginning of the 37th chapter of the prophet Ezekiel. And so now we have in, uh, in John, we're in John 11, the, the raising of Lazarus, come to life again, resuscitated. The people who built us this church 100 years ago gave us a reminder of that over the arches in Christ's early life, the Annunciation, the Visitation. The Annunciation we had yesterday, that's the Incarnation. We kneel with the Creed, right? For March 25th, December 25th. But what's the third one here? There's the Last Supper, there's the entry of Palm Sunday, and there's the raising of Lazarus. Do you see the stone? Do you see Lazarus? Do you see the Lord? And it's not simply the raising of Lazarus, it's the matter that Jesus had such deep friendships. He had a great friendship with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, didn't he? It used to be the doctrine that because nothing could change in God, God was immovable, Christ had to be sort of dead in emotion. And the idea that Jesus wept was sort of kept from the faithful even though it's standing here in the scriptures. And all the other parts of joy and so on were deep sixed. And solemnity was the only order of the day. I do occasionally say to people, happy Lent, which does seem a contradiction, but you're allowed when you find your true maker and the Lord God and make a sacrifice for, for a good purpose when you give alms to be joyful in that even though it is a solemn season. And Holy Week solemner still. But Jesus was touched but waited so that he could make a statement so that by the time he got there, the body had been there so long that no rabbi would dis but disagree that, the, that, the, uh, that Lazarus was clearly dead. He was not asleep and being awakened. He was dead, begun to putrefy. That's what they were worried. He was not dead that long. They knew, their, they knew the world. And so then there's that marvelous line from Martha. This time Mary's at home and Martha gets her fair share. Let's give it to Martha. She's often misspoken of. And she has that marvelous line, which I love to use in wakes and viewings when you have to do a gospel often. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Now let me tell you why I think that's powerful. It's said, of course, like anything against the backdrop. Context is everything. And in our world, we all come upon people, I do as a chaplain, but you do equally, with people who aren't ready to go to church or whatever because they don't really know, they think they've made so many mistakes that God doesn't love them and they have to be perfect first. And after they become perfect, they'll go to confession and then come to church. And this will happen in some distant day. Like, you know, infinity is more than George Cantor could count. And so, instead, we are called as earthen vessels who hold this marvelous treasure, who make mistakes. We are called this season especially 
for the sacrament of reconciliation and confess our faults, but to rejoice in the fact that we have a Savior. And we're also called to trust in God's help even though we are sinners, because that's precisely what having the Good Shepherd so great a Savior as we have means. That even though we've the sinners been treacherous, the world has its treachery, there is for us hope. Justice in that valley of bones brought back to life. So we and our world can be brought back to life as well, just as Lazarus is today. And so Christ the God, you wonder, is, is God cold-hearted? No. Did Christ have friends? Yes. Will God for, forgive me? Absolutely. Why did Pope Francis have a year of mercy? To break through our blindness, to break through our deafness, to break through our stiff-neckedness that we know the theology and we'll teach God. God must be wrong and only we are right. And we feel that it must be this way or the highway for God. Think of that. Just get a grip on that. You really can't make that up. If there's anything to confess, that's a good start. Calvinism. Confess it. It's absurd that God's out to get us. God so loved the world that he sent his only son not to condemn the world, but to bring us to life. But to bring us to life. And so we see that in the case of Lazarus brought back to life again. Last week we saw the man born blind. We saw this immense gift. The man born blind brought back, given life again, given sight again. And what do the people do? Is there rejoicing? Is there, do they give him the key to the city? What do they do to Christ? They give him grief. Here he is, he's fixed. They said, well, you did it on the Sabbath. There's all this nitpicking, all this nonsense. In the church today, you can find people who, in the city today, in the family today, and thanksgiving, you can find people anywhere because it's human nature 101. No, no invention of mine. Or, but you can find people who love to nitpick and see the pin and miss the whole city and point to that and miss the great reality. And so the Pharisees working hard to make the people blinder and blinder so they miss that gift of sight. And now today the gift of life. So Christ we saw last week is, as that great sign in John's gospel, the light of the world. And now Christ is life. And he is the way and the truth and the life. Pope Francis in uh, December, December 28, I can give you the date, put out a letter on Francis de Sales because it was the 400th anniversary of his death. And Francis de Sales took women and men seriously and not just uh, monks and nuns behind bars and monasteries who at that time were the only people thought worthy of becoming saints, but he said everyone was called to sanctity. Each of us here and everyone out there called to a holy life, called to be saints and rejoice with the saints forever in heaven in Christ and his mother, and the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. And wrong for us to hold back the Holy Spirit's gifts. Wrong for us to hold back the Father's forgiveness. Wrong for us to hold back the Lord's teaching that he has for each of us life if we simply accept it. There is the faith to learn, sometimes merely memorize, no, to implement into life. And so that says there's not only what Christ taught, but there's the acceptance of it, the handshake, the reception. The reception into a book that we put on the shelf or into a notebook we fold and put on the shelf, no. Into a life. Last night, I had a, um, we had the RCIA at the end of the 5 p.m. Mass. Middle of the 5 p.m. Mass, they come up before the creed, don't they? So they came up, and there were many visitors because of Junior Parents Sunday 
for Harvard, and people were amazed that the place, there wasn't enough room to put the people here. They were sort of bulging along here, right? And it's a sense of how many people want to discover Christ, and if we are transparent enough in our lives to let Christ through, what great results there will be. We also had a wedding. There were two members of the RCIA who had been married civilly but not in church. So we did their, they did their vows and rings and the blessing of that. We had visiting because we had a law school retreat over there. The law students were there and we had a speaker come a Benedictine monk from the Abbey of St. Anselm in, in Washington, D.C. We also had someone else who was serving from the seminary. So all these people to introduce and mention and whatever. We got out in 52 minutes, but I'm just saying it took some doing. It took some doing, but we had everything. I said to them, finally, I said, we had everything here in the circus except the lions and the tigers. And I said to them, once the law students were safe away, I said, actually, I had law students here. They're much scarier. They are much scarier than lions and tigers. I told them afterwards that I said that tongue in cheek. But you have to admit it's a good lie. The best line of all is our blessed Lord's. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. St. Francis of Sales in the introduction to the devout life, not only a magnificent spiritual director of the history of the church, but also someone concerned for every person in all their concerns and desires, helping make sure they don't go into extremism in their own world, in their own rabbit hole, but come into the full broad light of the boulevard of the church with everyone else, shoulder to shoulder, teaches us all how to be better Christians and to become disciples and to take the Lord's hand as he drew Lazarus out and to come back to life. Cardinal Sean, in terms of organized religion and churches, uh, is, is fond of saying that this country, the Catholics are the biggest number, and the second biggest number, according to some, some polls, are former Catholics. Well, people have been hurt, people have had trouble, people have been misunderstood. They've had to put up with their chaplain, you can sympathize, they won't have purgatory, but they may not have come to church anymore. But you know that you and I, by stopping to hear the talk and to hear them out, and to hear out the justice of their complaint, and offer our sympathy, we can also welcome them back. And that makes all the difference. For then they are come to find him who is the way, and the truth, and the life. Thanks for listening to Within the Walls of St. Paul's Sunday Homilies. Please be sure to like us on Facebook and consider supporting us by visiting stpaulsharvardsquare.org. That's stpaulsharvardsquare.org. God bless and see you next time.